And through, again, one of my nerdy exercises of, you know, reading mental models and whatnot, I realized that so much of the things that, particularly Newton and even quantum mechanics, really explains everything in life. And then, and if people see it, but they don't really describe it in the way the physicists would. So, like, one of my favorite sayings, and I've told this to people I've worked with, is, you know, people mistake activity for achievement, right? And you know, this is one of John Wooden's famous sayings, don't mistake activity for achievement. In physics, the same thing. You know, it doesn't matter how much energy you exert. If nothing moves, no work is done. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm so happy to be here today with Damian Atkins, Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at Aura. Damian, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored. Well, we're delighted to have you. And I would love for you to share just a bit about your background, a bit of your story with our listeners as we get started. Sure. I was born in San Francisco, California. I lived in Oakland for the first 10 years of my life. Then my dad changed jobs, became a foreign service officer, and we moved to Ecuador and Panama for, I guess, most of my elementary school and junior high school. And then after that, moved to Washington, D.C., where I went to D.C. public schools, then went off to Stanford, graduated, didn't do much for a couple of years, and a lot of odd jobs, and decided to, I guess it's time to grow up and do something with myself and go to law school. Probably not the best reason to go spend a lot of money getting legal educations because you need to go do something with your life, but that was what people did at the time. And then, you know, did the traditional path, worked at a law firm. I really, you know, I would say that at about a year and a half or so in that role, I decided that, you know, being an in-house law firm lawyer wasn't for me and got the tech internet bug back in 2000 and have always really kind of been unable to like satisfy or get off that addiction. You know, I've gone different directions in my life, but I've always been fascinated with technology. That startup, of course, blew up in 2000 and went bankrupt. So what happened? Fast forward, went back to law firm hat in hand, was there for a number of years and started working at AOL. And, you know, was there for 10 years, ups and downs, just like three or four different companies. And then moved to Panasonic, which was great. And then Hershey for a number of years. And then here I am back in tech. So, you know, from a career standpoint, it's been a long winding road. It's definitely not been linear, but it's been great. I wouldn't trade any experience at all. Damien, as you were describing that career journey, you mentioned ups and downs along the way. You mentioned that it wasn't linear. And it reminded me that one of the concepts that you shared with me as we were preparing for this conversation was the idea of the surface area of luck, which I really loved. And you said there are lots of things that you can do to maximize your chances of being lucky. Will you share a little bit more about your thinking in that regard? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will say I'm not an originator of some of these ideas. I'm more of a channel or a conduit for a lot of them because there's a lot of smart people out there who spent quite a bit of time thinking about luck and how to increase it. So yeah, I'm just, you know, typical, typical nerd, you know, I find something interesting and I can't just go to the, you know, the shallow end of the pool. I got to dive right into the deep end and, you know, there's charts and whatnot. So, you know, a lot of people think luck is something that's purely random, you know, I walked outside the street, walked two blocks, turned left, and I got hit by a car. That's bad luck, you know, random event. And that's true to a large degree because there are things in life, you know, like we're going to get into physics, but like quantum mechanics, like it's, it's random, right? But if you really have a goal and your goal is to say, be the number one pitcher in baseball, for example, and you want to play for the New York Yankees. And a lot of people say, hey, it was just a lucky thing. I just, somehow I just made it here. That's not true. There are things you can do to increase the likelihood of something good happening to you that then puts you on the path towards the goal that you're trying to achieve. So, you know, one of the things, you know, talk about in terms of surface area of luck is one thing you can do is very easy is telling people, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm about. The more people you tell, you might increase your chances of running into someone who'd actually help you along the path. So true. The second thing is do things that bring you in contact with folks like that. So if you have a real interest in leadership development, start writing blog posts, start writing things on LinkedIn, start speaking at conferences. All of a sudden, you've now put yourself in a position for something, you know, they call it a spontaneous lucky encounter. Boom, it happens. There are other ways luck's come to you. Sometimes you can act as a magnet to luck. If you build up yourself into a, someone of value, you'd be surprised the number of lucky opportunities that just come your way because you just happen to be someone who is interesting or who's known to have insight. So there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different models there. Are, you know, I'm happy to, you know, you can go even deeper dive there, but luck is not something that is just completely out of your control. You can do things to ensure that all of a sudden lucky thing happens. Here's, here's a story for you. So I really wanted to be a, a journal counsel, you know, call it 15 years ago. And I was like, well, how does one do this? And it looks like people just could fall into these jobs. And, and I realized that, okay, so there's really about six people who are the gatekeepers to get this role. I need to figure out a way to make myself valuable and known to these people. Where do these people go? Oh, they tend to go to these conferences. Oh, they tend to go to these particular locations. Okay, so I'm going to figure out a way to get myself there and in, in a position where I can be either speaking or prominent where I can be noticed. And then since they'll be there, I'll make sure that, you know, I'll introduce myself. That's, you know, saying, okay, it's not a random process that you this outcome is going to happen. I'm going to do things and tell people of what <laughs> I want to do. And then lo and behold, you know, I met a couple of people at these places. wasn't planned. Total random. But I increased the likelihood of something good happening. And out of that relationship, 18 months later, hey, here's a role for you. I know we met back at this event. And I, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to him, you know, Paul Williams, his name. And I said, you know, the two of us meeting wasn't purely by accident. <laughs> yeah, this was part of a process through which I increased my surface area of luck. And lo and behold, something happened. So people too often are too passive about kind of creating their own opportunities. Even Jamie Foxx has stories about this too in a podcast with Tim Ferriss. Well, I'm so glad that you went into detail with that answer because I do think it's really common for folks who have had some measure of success to attribute it to luck out of a sense of modesty, you know, something like I got really lucky when in fact it does take strategy and it takes focus and it takes intention 
Absolutely. I think that luck is the kind of thing that it is too serious and too important to be left to chance. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. To get lucky, you have to be serious about getting lucky. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't necessarily, and you know, and this goes for the bad side too. I mean, there are, if you have patterns of behavior and if you have patterns of dealing with folks, guaranteed over time, you're going to have some bad luck, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But mm-hmm. if you, if there's something that you really want to get to, that you really want to do, you know, taking control, letting people know, doing things that put you yeah. out there and then building up your own intrinsic value, luck shows up. So I think when one person who's thought about this more than I have you know, they talk about there's four kinds of luck, right? I've talked about the magnetic luck, you know, where you're mm-hmm. someone of value. I've talked about active luck, telling people and doing things, you know, and then I've talked about the accidental luck. Hey, I just walked outside and got hit by a bus, bad luck. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's the prepared version of the telling people, the doing things, yeah. studying, putting yourself in swim lanes where things are happening. Yes. And I think I it's a, it. if, you, if you have the four box, you have to kind of try to put yourself on the right side of the four mm-hmm. box. Mm-hmm. One reason why I'm really grateful that you're sharing this is I grew up in a family. And I've shared this with the Breakline community. My father used to always say, we always offer help. We never ask for help. But in order to get lucky, part of that is asking for help. And by the way, earning that help as well. You talked about earning it through performance, but I do think that there's something really important for people to hear around agency, you know, and self-advocacy and going after what you want rather than just sort of passively waiting to see if it'll cross your path. So I appreciate the specificity there. I think you're, I mean, you just hit on something else that you can do is the more you do for people, Yes. Without any kind of expectation of return, just helping people out with their problems, yes. making connections to the people, that eventually comes back to you. You know, that is another way to increase your surface area of luck is to help others achieve Absolutely. what they want to do. Yes. You know, people remember, right? Oh, let me talk to so-and-so. Damien helped me with this or Bethany helped me with that. But yeah, agency is critical. It's critical. If you don't, again, this goes back to the laws of physics, right? Objects in motion will stay in motion. Objects at mm-hmm. rest will stay at rest unless you take action. You're going to mm-hmm. be stuck where you are. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me to my next question for you. And you <laughs> described yourself. You said something like I'm a typical nerd. And I want to double down on that because you have also observed, Damien, that the laws of physics apply to business. Can you talk to us a little bit <laughs> about this perspective? Because I'll tell you, I never took a physics class. <laughs> so that statement never would have come out of my mouth. And so I'm really interested in, in what's behind that. Yeah, it's funny. I am, you know, I'm total nerd. You know, I went to Stanford. We had techies and we had uh, most of them was techie and fuzzies. Fuzzies were literature and arts and history people. Some of diehard fuzzy who came to physics and stuff much later in life. Because I felt, oh, okay, this is actually interesting. Because the way they teach it is, I don't know, it's, you know, it's too math heavy. But, you know, I think that it came from when I was really trying to understand human nature. And when you're thrust into a leadership position, so much of that is trying to understand human nature and kind of the unseen but ever-present laws of, of life. And through, again, one of my nerdy exercises of, you know, reading mental models and whatnot, I realized that so much of the things that, particularly Newton and even quantum mechanics, really explains everything in life. And then, and if people see it, but they don't really describe it in the way the physicists would. So, like, one of my favorite sayings, and I tell this to people I've worked with, is, you know, people mistake activity for achievement. 
right? You know, this is one of John Wooden's famous sayings, don't mistake activity for achievement. In physics, the same thing. You know, it doesn't matter how much energy you exert. If nothing moves, no work is done, right? <laughs> you know, you have to have some kind of displacement. You know, without displacement, you're just burning energy, but nothing happens. So, you know, physics describes these, and this is true. People will say, oh, it's so busy. I'll say, but you got nothing done. There was no displacement. There was no work done. Things like, you know, when you have a good team working together, it could be two people, it could be three, it could be 20. You know, when two folks are on the same frequency, they're able to produce so much more. You know, it's like it holds true in relationships and works and teams. When people coordinate in the same frame, and I've seen this too, there's some folks who just, we really work well together. And you're amazed at what you're able to kind of, same law in physics. Things that coordinate in the same frequency, the impact is tremendous. And I, I could go on for days here, but, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about you and the perspectives and philosophies that you're sharing is on one level, they are super nerdy. But on the flip side, you can really boil things down into extremely simplistic terms. And so I want to give one example here. You, you've shared a sentiment that so much of life can be explained by tennis and boxing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm curious about what's behind this. You said, when I find myself going awry professionally or personally, I remember just step and hit. What does that mean? Step and hit. Step and hit. So in tennis... And I'm an avid but very average tennis player. Just just for clarity here, I am not going to be on TV at the French Open anytime soon, way past. But I find that in tennis, like in life, you perform best when you're in balance. Balance is key. And you are focused on what's in front of you and doing the basics. And so often, you know, again, I'm in the middle of tennis matches where for the first 30 minutes... I'm hitting balls in the ocean. I'm hitting balls over the fence. I'm, you know, it's just, it's just horrible. And I've learned that, you know what, clearly I just need to get back, breathe and step and hit and focus on what is the object in front of you at that moment and stay in balance. You know, make sure both feet are planted the right space. You take a step, nice move, one swing. And that's like with work, with relationships you know, it all can be traced back to not doing the fundamentals well. And, you know, I learned that, you know, through life, but it, it really is applies in sports and particularly the sports of tennis and boxing In boxing, you see it all the time. Balance is critical. People say, Oh, you know, really hit that person in the jaw and kicked him. No, it's all footwork and balance. Like none of that is possible unless they're breathing and their feet are in the proper position at any given time to maximize the effectiveness of whatever they're trying to do. Tennis is the same way, and frankly, life is. You have to you know, step and hit. Tell someone you love them. Think about someone. <laughs> Write the card. You know, focus what is in front of you right now. Is you know, is, is you know, I have kids too. My daughter's thirteen, and <laughs> we talk about this all the time. There's give any number of different things going on, but you realize, okay. The fundamental problem here is communication, step and hit. So that's now, you know, really in the last year, year and a half, that's become kind of a mantra of mine. You know, people overhear me saying it all the time in a meeting, step and hit. <laughs> Deep breath, step and hit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find the power of those kind of trigger words, so to speak, are tremendous. I think everyone should probably have them. But, you know, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I was thinking as you were sharing that, we're talking in 
the midst of such a crazy confluence of events. We're about two and a half years into a global pandemic. There's a land war in Europe. In the United States, we've had several mass shootings in the last couple of weeks alone. It just feels like a very unstable time. And the whole idea of having like a core touchstone that you come back to, especially when things are chaotic around you, feels like an important tool to have in life. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we as, as crazy as our current times are, and there's no denying things are bananas right now from a geopolitical standpoint, from just every standpoint, we have to recognize that none of this is new. You know, I, one of my favorite you know authors is Marcus Aurelius, I read meditations a lot. And if you look back and kind of what he had to deal with, plagues, wars, assassinations, plots, this is human nature. It's always been crazy. And, you know, there are people and there are methods and there are manuals, whole books written out there by people who sought to kind of remain grounded in the moment and focus on what they can control. And for me, you know, after, you know, I've read a number of different ways, for me, it works best to think about breathe, step, hit, just go about your day. Because I, I remember, this is somewhat of an aside, I remember right when the pandemic hit and everyone's under lockdown and... You know, it was just, again, you felt completely discombobulated. Are you ever going to be able to leave your house again? And I remember, you know, one of the things I'd read from, I guess it was James Clear, and he was just like, you know, just win the day. You know, just just win the day, whatever that day is. Did you work out? Did you say I love you? Did you just, you got to win the day. And Mark Surrealist talks about this. You know, again, none of this is new, but I find that it's important to not only read and expose yourself to it, but then kind of incorporate into a daily practice in some way that it gives you meaning and gives you your own ability to remain calm and, and to be centered. And again, for me, it works with tennis. Again, not a very good player, but step and hit. And, you know, when you say that to yourself and it works in one part of your life, you'd be surprised how well it transfers to everything else. Yeah. And I... I was thinking as you were talking about reading, it reminded me, General Mattis, I was lucky enough to overlap with him at Stanford, and oh, wow. and he's become a wonderful mentor to me. And one thing that he's said publicly many times is he, he's called the warrior monk because he has this enormous library of books. And he says, I've never felt like I couldn't see a way through whatever the situation is, because I had history as my guide to light the way. So something very similar to what you're talking about as well. And so you have kids, Damien, I have four girls and I watch them. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Damien. It's, <laughs> okay. it's wild over here. I'd love um, to hear what your mantra is. That's one reason why I was really identified. So I ask myself two questions every day. One is, do I feel connected to the people that I care about? And the second one is, am I doing my very best on behalf of my community? And so that's how I stay centered and, and really focused because it does get chaotic. But I just want to impress upon anyone who's listening how important that is to read, you know, and to be aware of both current events, but also history. 
because there's so many things. Condoleezza Rice made the same point, actually, when she came on the Breakline Arena. She was saying, we should not be banning books. We should not be saying, requiring people to stop talking about stuff. She's like, this is how we enable ourselves to not have to relearn lessons from history. You know, and here you are reading Marcus Aurelius, like just thoughts on the importance of staying informed, both from a current events perspective, but also just learning from people hundreds, even thousands of years ago. Yeah, I I find it's much harder to do than it was, you know, when I was much younger. But I find that I am a much more thoughtful, more impactful, better person, the less I focus on the news and this little thing in front of me in my phone and engage with kind of the best minds that have lived for thousands of years. If you read books, you know, I'm a big fan of Naval Ravikant. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's, you know, he's fantastic. But you know, if you read books, you are automatically kind of stretching yourself and entering the thoughts and the lives of folks who have you know, either done incredible things, done incredible thoughts. And it just gives you that perspective on things such that Kind of what Mattis has night. He's a hero of mine. So, yeah, you're really not surprised, particularly things like human nature. Like I've been trying now, and you know, promising myself I'm going to do it this year, is to really, you know, things like the classics like a Shakespeare or something where every type of person you could possibly imagine is in these plays. <laughs> but it is just much more interesting engaging with that than engaging with kind of the attention merchants out here, you know, the Facebooks, the Googles and Instagrams and whatnot, because that, you know, they know the way human nature is set up and the human brain is wired. So they just, they do whatever they can to get your attention on this box and not really engaging with kind of more fundamental laws of life and human nature and real sources of value from, you know, Naval has a saying that, you know, all great things in life of any kind of value come from things that compound over time. Hmm. And, you know, initially when I read that, it was some years ago. I was like, what is he talking about? But he's right. Mm-hmm. Relationships, you know, wealth, mental health, physical health. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it is those things that you make daily deposits in over a durationally significant period of time that have the most benefits. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, the more I engage and more I put those daily deposits in, Mm-hmm. And then takes and I go off course, you know, step and hit, <laughs> step and hit. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to let's get back to the basics. I find that the more comfortable, happy, and better person that I am, but it's a struggle, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're constantly surrounded with noise everywhere. From you know, again, you know, this mm-hmm. Twitter, you know, you constantly bombarded with things. So you know, you have to carve out and make sure that you make those daily deposits on those things that compound over time. Because at the end of the day, and again, this is, you know, this has happened before. People have figured this out and we're all not going to be here forever. Right. And then if you look at, I'm kind of rambling here, and I forgot which study this was, but, you know, there have been studies where they talk to people in their 80s and they look back on their lives, what do they wish they did more of? And yeah. it's all of those things that compound over time, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you kind of do a future back view, you know, when you're 87, 90, however it is at this point, mm-hmm. and you're saying, you know, you want to look back and say, I spent most of my time doing those things mm-hmm. that you really value when you know you don't have more time left. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trust me, I've kind of gone many directions, but I'm finally at the point where now, you know, over the last few years that I really have to focus on those things. Everything else is just mm-hmm. noise. Mm-hmm. In order to get there, 
like, did you have to hit a bottom of some kind? Did you have to learn a painful lesson? And the reason why I'm asking is because I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember, you know, and like, we can hit different types of bottoms. One can be just having a crappy day. And I remember when my first daughter was six months old or something, I was learning how to be a mom. I was exhausted. And I needed to go to this yoga class and I was about to run out of time. And I was freaking out <laughs> about like changing the baby's diaper or whatever. My husband was like, go to yoga. You know, you staying here <laughs> doing whatever this is, is not helping you or us. So go to yoga. So it was a, like, I just had to be pulled out of that moment by someone who cared about me. But it happened professionally too, where I just got to a place where I was like, I want more than this. You know, if I'm going to invest my time, if I'm going to invest all of the gifts that have been invested in me to get to this place, I want more. But I had to kind of feel that in a very painful way. It had to be super painful for me to actually be brave enough to do it because it was so scary. So did you like any moments like that where you finally came to this realization of just taking control over your life and really creating the life that matters most to you? Yeah, I mean, maybe three times in my life that I can think of where, you know, you're just at rock, rock, rock bottom. And, you know, what's the saying, you know, pain plus reflection equals progress. It's very true. And each one of those times of, you know, as painful as it's been, I mean, as painful as it is, it's like unbearable pain, things that you did not want to face actually come to fruition tend to be at least Dave, each one for me has been transformative and it's really sparked. You're right. One, you got to have, it has to be immediately painful. It has to be that one thing that you fear the most has to happen to you. You know, I mean, there's a time some 10 years ago and I've told this story where I really thought I was like, I was professionally, I walked into the general counsel calls me in the office. Hey, yeah, Damien, I know you just got promoted a month ago. That's not working out. And so what does that mean? Well, I don't know. So does this mean I'm like, fine? Well, I don't know. Come back. We'll see. And I was like, oh boy. So here I am like young baby, no job, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. So any, we going to talk next? No, I don't know. I'll just, I'll let you know. And, you know, just, and again, there's been other instances, but this is one where you're just like, oh my God, clearly I don't have a plan. I don't have any network. I don't have relationships. I have nothing. And it really kind of stopped me and think about where, okay, what am I doing? How am I spending my time? And how did I actually get here? What are the patterns of my own behavior that got me to this particular standpoint? And this is the reason why I talk about this instance, because it is the one that gave me the framework to kind of deal with those rock bottom moments. Thank God I had the framework, but what are those patterns of behavior that got you here? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Cause you know, the, you know, the, what's the saying if, the four or five people you spend the most time with have really, really huge impact on your outlook, feelings, emotions. You know, who am I spending my time with and spending my energy with? What are my patterns of behavior? How did I own this? Because this sucks. And you do very honest, deep introspective and self-analysis, which is painful when you're honest about it. And you realize that, one, this has happened to people, been worse to other people. You're not dead. <laughs> right? <laughs> you're not dead. You're going to die at some point. At this moment, you're not. And you have to do things differently 
if you want to get out of this. And sometimes it's involved, you know, true self-analysis, true self-reflection requires radical change. I mean, radical change. Like, And for me, it's each time I've done it, it's been radical change. Part of the pain plus reflections equals growth or progress. As you grow and progress, you're not really around the same people that you were hanging out with anymore. Or you recommit yourself to other relationships or you just things change because you know, you know, you don't want to be that person you have been and you're now on a different journey of, you know, becoming something else. And to do that, you have to change your patterns of behavior. You have to change who you're spending your time with. You have to change your thought process of how you see yourself. What are the real goals? What are the things that really have that, those values? And, you know, for me, you know, just as a professional example, I spent a lot of my professional energy, you know, chasing brass rings. What this name and this staff and this, when I realized I had been spending a lot of time and energy chasing that brass ring because it was important to have the brass ring. But if you really look back on your, at least from a professional standpoint, when were you the happiest? When were you the most engaged? Why were you doing like you were so happy and you talked to people who knew you then they're like, oh, you were so like you're different. And I realized that's what I need to be doing. Up or down, forget about the extraneous stuff. So, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm back in the technology space, working at a you know, smaller tech company because I, it's change, it's transformation. You never really know what you're dealing with on a given day. You're buying and selling companies, you're building teams, you're creating new products, you're creating a new brand. Like, I love it. There's no constraints. You know, I'm an entrepreneurial, I'm a creative person. I can, you know, I like to, you know, as I say, work like a lion, not a sheep. I like flexibility to work really, really hard when it's time to work really hard. When it's not, I'm not going to. So it's each time I've experienced a amount of pain. And, and I think it's important, folks who are listening, because the fact that you're experiencing pain typically is because you have done something. It is your yeah. patterns of behavior that have repeated over time. And it's karma, right? It's really your patterns of behavior. But eventually, they catch up to you. Mm-hmm. And we got to own that. And it's important that you really, really think about what you were doing and what your thoughts were and who you were with. Mm-hmm. And to then become something different. A lot of folks get stuck, right? They hit the pain yeah. point and they never... I realized, you know, this is 10 years ago, that that's worse, right? You know, you, if you want to get to progress... You have to have the pain and reflect on it. Mm-hmm. And then, well, it's pain plus reflection mm. plus a process and a plan gives you, mm-hmm. gives you progress. When you were sharing that, I was thinking about John Donahoe, who's the CEO of Nike. He said one of my favorite things ever in Breakline. He said, if you think about the times in your life, the phases of your life of which you're most proud, undoubtedly, those were moments of pain. <laughs> You know, things that you did that were excruciatingly hard and you overcame somehow. And he said, we spend our whole lives trying to avoid pain, but actually those are just moments of growth and striving and stretching. And we should really adjust our mindset to embrace them when they're happening. So hard to do, Damien. I'm not saying that I'm good at that, but it was a really healthy way of thinking about Phases that can be scary and stressful and hard. Oh, yeah. In the midst of those painful moments, and they do pass. And this is yes. folks who are listening that going through it, they do pass. Mm-hmm. Nothing will stay the same for that long. It might seem like an eternity, mm-hmm. but it, it does pass. But it, you know, he does have a point. Like, we should be embracing those painful moments mm-hmm. as opportunities to grow and create something new. And I, I've yeah. said this once or twice that, like, 
you know, it is something about the universe teaching us something, giving us a signal, not noise, mm-hmm. that something's out of kilter here. Mm-hmm. And too often people will run away from it. You, know, you see this you know, from the anxiety drugs and drinking and, and any number of different things. The escape from it as opposed to really doing that deep, deep kind of self-analysis. And some mm-hmm. people, even some, I even encourage folks to therapy, but that self-analysis of, one, don't get so down on yourself because of this happened. Mm-hmm. You're a human being. Mm-hmm. It could always be, could have always been worse. Mm-hmm. And two, you know, the notion that we are all static individuals, like, oh, I'm just that kind of person. I'm just that way. That's not true. You know, yeah. That's not true at all. It's all about who you're becoming every right. day. Who are you becoming? Not who you are. It's who you're becoming. Mm-hmm. And it's in those painful moments that those things really hit home. Mm-hmm. But I will say that. It's important that one thing I can share is that try to develop a framework to how yeah. to process those moments and yeah. see, you know, use your third eye and see yourself as an observer to really grow from it. Otherwise, you know, again, I know people who are stuck. Right. <laughs> it's stuck in that plain point. Right. One thing that's been really important for me when I've had phases like that, and I've had many, is to be surrounded by people who cared about me. And who could function like a mirror, hold up a mirror and remind me of who I am and what I'm capable of. And we do that all the time at Breakline. And I'm curious because you've also talked about the importance of having a personal board of directors. And I didn't, like early in my career, I grew up in a little town in Vermont. You know, my parents had nothing to do with business. Like I just had no idea how important relationships were when it came to figuring out who you are and to being able to pull help in at various times. I had no idea. I had none of that context. And so I have a lot of empathy for other folks coming from backgrounds where it's just a black box until you're able to shine a light and figure it out. Can you talk to us about your personal board of directors, how you came up with that concept, who you look for, like who you invite into your life to play that role? Yeah, that's it's an interesting question, particularly at this stage, kind of where I am in this in my in my development. It is a concept that was introduced to me. I want to say either by my dad or my uncle, if not both of them, around the same time. And I remember my father talking about how you know he was in the State Department, and the way to get good postings in the State Department is to talk to the Godfather and kind of the board. We talk about so you know whether it's retired Foreign Service officers or people who are. Towards the end of their career, but he's like, it's always important to have relationships with people who can kind of give you really kind of the, they call it the dirt, so to speak, like what's really going on. And Michael as well is like, you know, build a fan club. But as I was growing professionally, I realized that I spent so much time that I was trying to create my own path to my end goal and doing it all alone. And just figuring things out, which is great. Like, I think Mattis talks about this. Like, you have referential learning and you have experiential learning. It's very valuable, but I was just wasting a lot of time and there's no leverage, right? Because I was just doing it all myself. But then you realize that if you talk to people who've kind of walked that same path, you can avoid <laughs> any, any number of different things. So I realized that, okay, I need to start cultivating and meeting people who have walked the same path, who have seen things that I have and can give me insights that I can avoid pitfalls. And... You know, it's the kind of thing that the earlier you start, the better. And one rule I have is 10 years up, 10 years down. So people are 10 years older than you and 10 years younger. 
And those are the folks that you should be talking to. And that's your more fertile ground for your personal board of directors. And, you know, they are a combination typically of mentors and sponsors. And then it could be family friends. And so you have that group of folks who, like for me, you know, I have an old former boss. I have former colleagues. I have board members that I used to work with. I don't really know them that well, but for whatever reason, we're on the, we operate on the same frequency. It could be really old friends of mine from high school that I still keep in contact with. But you need to have that, you know, I, one, I think you need to have the ability to see yourself as an observer and develop that at a young age. But if you can't do that, and we're never really that honest with ourselves for the most part, you need to develop people who can see you and talk to you and give it to you the truth as an outside observer. So again, when my most painful moments and I, you know, one of the things I realized I wasn't spending enough time with those people, I was spending my time way, way far afield, but you know, I spent a lot of time with some very you know, close friends of mine from call it the mid eighties. And it was amazing kind of, you know, just long conversations and they would just say, yeah, we haven't talked in X amount of time. I've been meaning to tell you to A, B, C, C, and D. So, you know, I think it's critical to have, in any kind of personal development plan, you have to have people who give you honest feedback and also who give you insight, actionable insight. Because, you know, we all think we can do it ourselves. Why well, have all the answers? No, it's not true at all. That's not true at all. If you want to be efficient, you need to talk, get insight and actual insight from folks. You need guides. You know, everyone has blind spots. I have plenty. And you need people out there who can, you know, compensate for those blind spots or who know your patterns of behavior. <laughs> and can, can steer you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm, I'm curious about, as we've been talking, you've mentioned several times the importance of communicating. You talked early in the conversation about saying, I love you. Have I said I love you? It's my kid, you know? And then more recently, you're talking about conversations with old friends. How do you think about the role of communications as a leader? And one of the reasons why I'm asking the question is because it becomes more and more obvious that over communicating as a leader, as an executive is just does not exist. (laughs) Like you cannot communicate too much when something is critically important. I agree with that. Now there's, I'd say there's no such thing as over communicating in an effective manner. I've seen any number of different folks. Now there's one CEO sent a memo about, their cat's birthday or something like, you know, just whatever that kind of, that, that no, but when it's over communicating, this is a strategy over communicating. These are the important things for us for this quarter, for this year, over communicating on these are the set of behaviors that I expect and will reward. And if I don't see those behaviors, you will not be rewarded. Those kinds of things. Absolutely. Particularly if you're operating at scale, it is something that I struggled with. You know, I, I like to talk because you see, I love to talk. But so often in a leadership role, you're always caught in between, between being a member of the leadership team, if you're not the CEO, and then being kind of the leader of a team and kind of how do you kind of mediate between the two? And people tend to over-index one way or the other. I certainly have tried to find the right balance. You know, clear communication of those things that are important. And there's a lot of ways to do that, right? It, it is not the traditional, let me go stand in front of a room with 10 slides and everyone's yawning and they're on their phones after five minutes. It could be you have to communicate in a one-on-one. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? How's the workload? 
you know, because communicating and then without any action, like again, like we said, all this activity, but there's no displacement, <laughs> right? So you need to back that up with some type of action, but being able to communicate across all modes effectively, there's no shortage of it. And it's something I've been continually working on. I have a much smaller team now, but it's the same challenge. You know, when you have kind of a large team, call it 150 plus, you have to communicate at a different style and a different mode, probably a different frequency. Team of 150 or less, you can be a bit more informal, you can be more, more available, but it's always clear to, um, if you're going to be in particularly a leadership role, communicate what's important to the company or the enterprise, what's important to you, what does success look like from a behavioral standpoint and organizational standpoint? Damien, one of the stories that you shared with me was just about your family lineage, which I wanted to share here because it's so remarkable. I think you said your great-grandfather was born into slavery, ultimately taught himself to read, earned a college degree, earned a master's degree. Your grandmother became a politician in Oklahoma. You've talked about your father and his career as a as a foreign service officer in Latin America, largely. And your mom was also a special ed teacher. The most patient person I know. Yeah. I mean, just like <laughs> an extraordinary family lineage. And I think all the time about my grandparents, especially my grandfather, whose family emigrated to the U.S. from Italy. I just feel their presence with me a lot. And I still feel like I want them to be proud of me and I want them to be proud of my choices. Do you think about that? Like you're the generations of Atkins who went before you and their ambition and their achievements and their choices and, you know, and yourself as a person in a line of other incredible people. It often helps in those, in those moments we were talking about earlier, those painful moments. So, you know, you think about, you know, a great, he's great, great grandfather. The bishop was, people call them the bishop for any number of different reasons. But, you know, when you're experiencing those painful moments and you kind of start looking back, you're like, come on, like, really? Like, get over yourself. You know, like, and, you know my grandfather came here on a, you know, a boat from Trinidad with like a, less than a dollar, right? Like, get over yourself, Damien. Like, really? And it gives you that perspective of, you know, a lot of people are able to achieve considerably more than I'll ever do. Starting off in a much worse position in a society that was, you know, like we're not perfect as America, but it's considerably better than it was in 1850 or, you know, when my great grandfather was born in 1866, right? Or 1865. I mean, just by definition, you're not property, right? So it offers you a lot of perspective and it's inspirational because it helps you. One is you're in a painful moment, you're looking back and you're saying, okay, so chill out, just chill out. And then two is like, People can, you have that ability. There are people that you have admired in your life who've overcome much, much more. Like, you know, my grandmother didn't really become a politician until she was in her 40s, you know, after her kids were grown. And, you know, this is a black woman in Oklahoma in the 60s. Like, what's that all about? Like, what kind of, what kind of, so it's never too late. You know, once you find your purpose, lean into it. And anything you put your mind to, by increasing your increasing your surface area of luck and actually doing the work so there's displacement, it will happen no matter where you start. And there are people who've done much more with starting way far less. You know, like, again, to never know your mom to be 
teach yourself how to read at night because you're your property. And then to put yourself through school and you know, speaking Latin and Greek, I mean, all these things. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's a way to kind of keep motivate yourself when you really don't feel like, you know, we've had those days. You're just, oh, you know, I'm just going to sit here today. It's just not my day. Maybe not. <laughs> I will say it is interesting because, you know, I've been in a number of these exercises where they talk about kind of, you know, Especially in DEI programs now, they'll say, "Oh, listen, you know, if, if your parents went to college, take a step here. Great grandparents would come." And inevitably, I'm always like the only one up there, <laughs> which is always unusual. And that that is something that you know I find just an interesting piece of kind of American history that doesn't get a lot of kind of publication and whatnot. But it's not as uncommon as people might think. But it is uncommon, so to speak. I do enjoy kind of reflecting on that and just saying that you know anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Anything is possible. And I do kind of wish that, you know, I could spend more time, again, looking back, spend more time kind of learning and listening to mm-hmm. all the insight you could have gotten. Okay, Damien, I know that we just have a few more minutes together. And I'm realizing we've spent this whole hour chatting and we haven't even talked about Aura. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would love for you to just tell us, I mean, you could have done anything and gone anywhere and you chose to join the team at Aura. And so I'd love for you to just talk about what you all are building together and why you found it so compelling that you decided to jump in as part of the team. I was kind of out in the wilderness for a couple months trying to figure out what I wanted to do and kind of spending a lot of time reflecting on when was I the happiest in my professional career? What was I doing? And I came to the conclusion of, you know, isn't it kind of a tech environment, fast-paced, creative, focus on transformation, let's just go. And, you know, I was talking, I was working with an executive coach, and he said, look, you know, Damien, you're someone, you know, for a long time you wanted to be a general in the Army, and you're probably better off in a leader of a special forces team. Where, you know, in the Army, you get to go up, go down, you're dealing with scale, as much of your time is dealing with kind of Army jargon and getting things through the Army and get your big office. Where in special forces, you know, Everyone's clear on the mission. Everyone's highly trained and highly skilled. You don't have to worry about freeloaders or anything else. And you're really dedicated towards achieving that mission and building something. So I wanted something more like Special Forces, just from a cultural standpoint. I also wanted to get back into technology. And I wanted to look, I was looking for a management team that had a track record for building and creating value. And so, okay, I was looking at technology. So for tech, which was hot, for the last month or so, it's crypto, health tech, ed tech, and cyber. And I don't know anything about healthcare, so that's out of the picture. Crypto, I'm not a finance person. Well, I am, but not not like that. I'm not a financial services person. So it's really, you know, okay, it's really probably going to be cyber probably. So you know, Aura's in cyber. It's in consumer internet, which you know, I loved. It was there for a long time. And you know, looking at the, the background of the management team, you know, my CEO took a company from zero to three billion. And you know, that's a unique skill set. That kind of stuff doesn't happen by accident. And so I said, okay, I'm in the right industry, right kind of culture, leadership team with a good track record of value creation. I think this is it. And you know, through increasing my surface area of luck, through talking to venture capitalists in the space and what's hot, what are the hot companies, who are the companies raising money in this particular area, which management teams that everyone like, and and kind of introducing myself to various people in the space, I eventually came to this opportunity. I got lucky. <laughs> I came to this opportunity. And I felt that it, it attracts a real problem. It creates real value in real people's lives. You know, too often, 
you know, we read about cyber breaches or the data breaches of these companies and, oh, Target was hit and they lost all this data. But the one thing people don't talk about is the people's lives that get impacted. That's you, that's me, that's everyone else. There's no one there to really solve those problems. And this is what Laura does. So not only am I in the space I like to be in, the culture I want to be in, and working with a team I like, we're actually solving real problems that people don't even really know that they have. Right? You're kind of aware of it. And then it hits you, then you realize there's no one there to save you. So it kind of hit all the various boxes. And that's what we're building now, really. The family, more of you know, the consumer cybersecurity solution, we call it intelligent safety, to protect people and their families, particularly kids and seniors, from cybercrime. There's been more cybercrime in the U.S. last year than any other crime. And it keeps trending upwards. As we, as we move more and more of our lives onto this little box here, you know, it just becomes the focus of everything. And criminals are there. So, you know, solving real people's problems through technology, building something, and working with a team with, you know, a tracker to creating value, it's great. I mean, I get up every day excited, going to work, it's fantastic. That's awesome, Damien. I love to hear it. And one of the, the things that you said several times today is your reflection on where have I been happiest? What was I doing? And it reminded me of a woman I interviewed recently, Alicia Thomas from Medallia. And she has this comment, she says, you're not going to steal my joy. And just the idea of the fact that we're entitled to joy, you know, and that joy is worth going after, you know, and grabbing onto with both hands. And I just appreciate you mentioning that that was a core consideration as you thought about what was next. Yeah, if you have the opportunity, and again, you know, we talk about family members and whatnot, but they didn't necessarily all have that choice. Like work was to be tolerated or, you know, suffered through. If you have that ability or that, uh, that availability, the ability to make choices, of how you spend your time professionally, choose the ones where it doesn't even feel like work anymore, mm-hmm. right? And you know, it's easier said than done. You know, I'm in my fifties now, but I do believe that you know when I, when I talk to people I mentor, like find something that you love to do that you would do it without getting paid to do. Mm-hmm. And you like it that much, and that that's what you should focus on. Money will come, and relate, but you'll build relationships, you'll learn things, you then create some value of yourself. So, and I, you know. Getting caught up in chasing brass rings, I think law schools inculcate us in chasing brass rings, but you know, focus more on those things that, like I said, increase in value due to compound interest. Mm-hmm. And your personal joy and fulfillment is one of those things too. And if you're not spending since so much of your time working in the workforce that you've got to if you're not making daily deposits in that area too, you might have family, you might have well, but that is a critical pillar, right? Mm-hmm. It's a critical pillar. To sustain happiness. Damien Atkins, Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at Aura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I could have talked another three hours. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.